It's Thursday, September 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. Chris Hill joining me in studio today from Fool.com, Matt Copenheffer and David Hansen. Good hey. to see you, gents. Hey, Chris. Thanks Howdy. for being here. Um, we're going to talk about the smartwatch industry, which has officially begun. Uh, we're going to talk auto sales here in the U.S., which are on the rise. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. And we're going to talk about, frankly, a pretty awesome uh, fun story from the world of food, but potentially a lucrative story in the world of food. Um, let's start with the smartwatch war, which, as I said, has officially begun. Qualcomm, yes, Qualcomm and Samsung have both introduced smartwatches um, and I'll just read directly from the Reuters story, um, which says that these two companies are tapping a potential wearable wearables market worth an estimated $50 billion as the high-end mobile phone market becomes saturated. I got to say, uh, I've, I've been a little dubious of the smartwatch thing just because it's been well over a decade since I've ever worn a watch. But does that number surprise you that that there are analysts out there saying this is a potential fifty billion dollar market? Let's just start with that before we get into the gadgets themselves, Matt. No, it it, it doesn't really surprise me. But first, I have to say that that I can't help but think about you remember the the, the Casio watches with the with the little number pad on them. Yes, the, 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 I can't help but think of that, and, and that doesn't exactly. That, that's not a that's not a good memory of those watches, but I think there are a lot of people who will, who will want the, this product. And I'm thinking about myself. I have to keep a I have to keep a pretty heavy duty case on my phone because I'm not very responsible, and so getting it in and out of my pocket is is a process. Okay. So having some functions available on my wrist would be kind of cool, and there's some concern over the idea that this would be selling for three hundred dollars. That just doesn't seem to be a stumbling point for people buying iPads, all the other tablet products. I think these will sell like hotcakes at $300. Or, frankly, high-end watches, which, or, will, well, which will sell. You, yeah, high-end watches. You can't, you can't sniff for $300. So. Uh, worth pointing out that uh, Qualcomm's smartwatch uh, can handle phone calls and messages on its own. Samsung's appears to be an accessory which in some way needs to be synced to your smartphone, which, I don't know, David, that seems like uh, if I've got the smartwatch, why do I also need my phone? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not betting against Samsung. Certainly what they have done in the mobile phone space over the last couple of years has been phenomenal. But um, it, it strikes me as an interesting choice. Um, and they're clearly looking at Apple and the iTunes ecosystem and saying, no, we want to build our own ecosystem. And maybe that's what's driving the design of their device. Mm -hmm. I mean, to go back to the 50 billion number, I don't really, I don't really get it. I would love to see what, <laughs> what are their inputs on that? Because we think about a watch. David's okay. not as much of a nerd as I am. <laughs> are, are they basing their assumptions off of the watch market, uh, the phone market, the tablet market? It just seems like kind of a, a number drawn out of thin air to me. And I'm with you, Chris. I'm kind of lukewarm on the idea of a watch. I just don't really get it. And I'm not. it doesn't sound like I'm the only one skeptical of the idea. You go online, everyone's like, is, does this really make sense to have an iWatch, a Samsung digital watch? And to check myself, I went back and looked at what were people saying when the iPhone came out? Were people bad-mouthing that and saying, this is a bad idea? I couldn't really find a lot of reviews that were negative on the iPhone when it came out. People were saying, this could be a game changer for phones. Sure. I went back and looked at when the iPad came out. 
There was a little bit more skepticism about the iPad. But there was overall, skepticism in this room there was about a, the iPad. There was a lot of skepticism about the iPad. But not as much as, as you might think. Compared to this iWatch, I mean, everywhere you're looking online, iWatch, I'm not buying one. Why would anyone buy one? So I just... So I don't saying, know if it makes sense. I, I just said I like it, David. What about that? <laughs> well, you don't. Care. But but I mean, to, to David's point, every month the consumer sentiment numbers come out, and people pay attention to that. That in some way has an impact on the market. It sounds like if you're measuring consumer sentiment on this industry, not necessarily any one given device, but just this industry, a greater level of skepticism going in than for either the iPhone or the iPad. Could be. I, I just I, I remember when the when the iPad was coming out, and I recall maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm recalling the wrong thing, but I recall that there was a lot of skepticism. Why do we need this? It's not really going to do what a computer does, and it's you know it's just a big iPhone, and nobody's going to buy this. Nobody's particularly going to buy this for all the money they're asking for, and that's done pretty well, I think. <laughs> it has, although it, uh, you give me the opportunity to remind our dozens of listeners that it was our own James Early who famously, when it first came out, compared the iPad to the El Camino. It's not really a car. It's not really a truck. It's, you know, they're, they're trying to have it both ways. But it is a glorious automobile. But it is a glorious automobile. So uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see. It's certainly something that we're going to keep our eyes on. We, we talk about the battle for the living room, uh, and it seems like the uh, – uh, the whole notion of wearable technology, I'm not, I'm not necessarily betting against that, but I think that it'll be interesting to see how Apple, uh, Google, possibly Microsoft, uh, and others respond to this. So definitely something we'll keep our eyes on. And that $50 billion number, that is, that is a number that's going to stick in my head. We'll see if that holds up. Uh, U.S. auto sales are on the rise. Sales in August were up 17% over last August. Uh, Matt, it seems like the recipe of low interest rates plus uh, slow, steady job growth plus the average age of a vehicle on the road is now somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 years, which I believe that's that's higher than average. I think for years it was sort of in the 8 to 10 range. But uh, it seems like it is uh, – all things are converging nicely for the automakers. That is a recipe for automaker success. For, for Well, for years now, we've seen people put off purchasing new cars. And so now we're just seeing the other end of that. The, the economy still isn't – exactly firing on all cylinders, but it's come back considerably. People are more confident in, in what's going to happen in the future. And we've got those low interest rates, yeah. which doesn't hurt. And uh, and that's that's going really well for the automakers. And in the meantime, they've slimmed down considerably. They've, they've pulled out a lot of operating costs. So at these production levels, which we saw prior to the crisis, at these same production levels, they can be a lot more profitable than they were before. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the headlines we're seeing today, David. Is like, hey, now the levels are back up to where they are, where they were before the crisis five years mm-hmm. ago. Um, when you when you look at the automakers, is that an industry that interests you as an investor, or is it? Uh, I'm I'm not I'm not going to put it in the same category as apparel, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I just I look at and just can't get my head around at all. But does the automaker industry interest you at all as an investor? I think a little bit, but when you talk about sales being great, you have to consider that these numbers that we're getting now, it's not necessarily easy to just say, well, we're back at 2007 levels. This is the way it's going to be forever. Right. We mentioned the backlog. So there's going to be some seasonality in terms of what are sales this month, next coming months. Uh, it's not a space that I dislike by any means, but I th- it's not one that I'm super excited about either. I know, Matt, we were talking about before, 
was bashing Ford back in 2009, and that went that came back to bite him in uh, bite him in the butt a little bit. So I'm not going to come out and say I don't like Ford at all or the other car makers, but not particularly super excited about and it. I, yeah, I got to give Matt credit because he called he called himself out on, out on this one when we mm-hmm. were trading emails this morning. He said, "Oh, by the way." Here's an article I wrote in January of 2009, and the headline was something like, Worst Stock of 2009, Ford. And it was basically your prediction. You're making the case for, even though shares of Ford at the time were trading around, I think $2.50 a share, you were saying, don't touch this stock. And over 2009, I think it went up more than 400%? Maybe. (laughs) Maybe something like that. I was in in my defense, and and I, I will say that I that I that I called myself out you on did. purpose. And if 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 we don't look back at things like that and learn from at least mistakes in in outcomes, then then we don't learn anything at all. Right. Um, I was looking primarily at the debt situation at Ford, and we saw that certainly come back to haunt the the other two of the big three. That was that was a big problem that they faced. So would I go back and do it over? I don't know. That's 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 a question that I that I haven't quite figured out yet because there was real risk going on there, but certainly from an outcome perspective, boy did I miss that one. <laughs> <laughs> um you can always drop us an email, radio at fool dot com is our email address. Uh, I got an email from Mark Hubbard, who writes, as one of your avid dozens of listeners in the UK, uh, could you please answer the following question? When a bear market beckons, and assuming you have invested in sound companies that have Buffett-style moats, is it better to sit it out and wait for the stock to rise again when the market turns bull? Or is it better to try and sell out before the top of the bear market and then use the cash to buy cheaper in the bull downturn. I think I think we get what he's saying there. Um, uh, what do you? What's your general take on that? I mean, you, David, you mentioned the seasonality of the auto market. I mean, I think we all know that the the market goes through ebbs and flows. How do you approach that as an investor? And by the way, does that does the way you approach it stand for everything you own in your portfolio, or are there some industries or stocks that you treat differently when you see a bear market coming? I would say in a perfect world, we'd all sell at the top of a bull market and then buy back in at the bottom of a bear. The problem is is that behavioral tendencies pretty much prevent us from doing that. And, right. and besides, everybody's trying to do that. So when everybody's trying to do anything, nobody's going to quite get it right. The way I do it is I'm buying companies in as much as I can in that Buffett style, and that's not trying to mimic what Buffett's doing, but that's to say that I'm buying companies that I think are good operators, have a good business, and then I want to hold for the long term. And holding for the long term means holding through good times and through bad times because I have found that it's just way too difficult to try to call the tops and the bottoms. Along with that, I generally am not fully invested. So I have some cash on the sidelines. And actually, uh, our colleague Morgan Housel wrote an article recently. I think the title was something something like, uh, What I'm Going to Do When the Market Crashes. And it was talking about investing additional cash on the sidelines in greater increments as the market falls. Right. And that, that's kind of the same approach that I have. If the market goes down 5%, I maybe put a little bit of my cash on the sidelines to work. If it goes down to 10%, a little bit more, 20%, a little bit more. And so having a little bit of uh, dry powder gives me some flexibility to do that without trying to call tops and bottoms. David? I'm saying do not try to call the top. <laughs> you're, you're just not going to do it. There's 
maybe a couple people out there in the world that can consistently do it. But most people, it's it's just a guessing game, and you should not try to do it. You're going to lose more often than not because even if you do sell, like Matt said, the emotions they can take over, and then you may you you're probably going to miss the bottom because you're going to say, oh, well, drop fifteen percent. It's probably going to drop twenty percent. I'm going to wait. So I would advise. He, he mentions Buffett style moats, and it's an interesting question because on Matt and I's daily video show yesterday, we talked about an example that almost fits this exactly. So I'll give you the numbers here. So if you bought $10,000 worth of American Express in 1993, so 20 years ago, great Buffett-style moat. Buffett actually owns American Express. Yep. It's not very easy to start a company like American Express. So big moat there, great company. $10,000 worth. In 2007, that $10,000 was worth $72,000. So 7x, nice. not bad. Rich. In You're 2009, rich. it went from 72000 to 12000 Think about that for That's a second. That's a rough stretch. That's a rough, <laughs> rough stretch. So you could have tried to, to sell at seventy two, buy back more w- when it was only worth whatever it was at $12,000 worth. Right. Pretty hard to do. But if you would have just held through, never looked at it, what that $10,000 would be worth today, 85000 So 8x. So even through all those ebbs and flows, if you just held on to the great company, didn't worry about trying to time the market, buy low, you would have had 8x your money. Not a bad stretch for over 20 years. I'd take that any So you've day. made a $75,000 profit, but spent, what, $20,000 on Maalox? <laughs> <laughs> well, and there are, the, there are always the tax implications. I mean, that is, that is one of the things that I, I, I always uh, sort of chuckle about whenever I see anything about day traders and talking mm-hmm. about, oh, I've, you know, I've made you know, X percentage over the last three weeks, and then, and, and then it's never including taxes. It's never including the significantly higher taxes that you're paying. Um, Those are just details. Just details. Uh, Mark concluded his very nice email by saying, absolutely love the program, and it is required listening every night before heading to sleep, which on the surface is nice, but I think you could also <laughs> take that as, if I'm having trouble sleeping, I listen to you guys, and it just, I nod off. Um, the dulcet tones. But thank you. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Uh, David, you mentioned the video show that you and Matt do every day. Before we get to our final story, I want to mention that. Uh, it is uh, for people who haven't checked it out. It's on Roku. Uh, it, it, it does not really live on its own at the moment on fool.com. It's sort of in various segments. There's a playlist on YouTube. Okay. Through the, through uh, the main Fool. The Motley account. Fool uh, YouTube channel. The show is called Where the Money Is. Uh, could you just briefly describe what it is you two do, guys do every day on this show? It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a show that will be uh, coming to a, a podcast format. We talk about daily headlines. We should take a little bit of a deeper dive looking at the financial industry, banks, insurance companies, REITs. Uh, we look at Twitter. We play some games. Usually try to keep it pretty light. Uh, runs around 20, 25 minutes. So it's fun. Uh, so as David mentioned, it's a daily video show. But yes, it is coming to the podcast. Uh, so we will let you know when it officially appears on iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn and, and et cetera. But uh, at some point in the next few weeks, uh, once we get the, the technical stuff worked out, where the money is will be available, the audio version of the video show. Uh, it will be available uh coming to you soon. So for those dozens of listeners looking for a little bit of a deeper dive, looking for more content on your commute or when you're walking your dog or doing your chores. Or trying or to get to sleep. Or trying to get to sleep. 
Uh, we will let you know when that officially launches, but it is coming later this month. Uh, finally, I like this story. Campbell Soup and Green Mountain Coffee Roasters are teaming up to make soup in your Korig machine. Um, so Campbell Soup K-Cups are going to be sold starting in 2014 in three different flavors. One of them is chicken noodle. They haven't named what the other two are. Um, so so two, two flavors to be named later. I don't know, though. I mean, I look <laughs> Minestrone. at the, uh, You never know. I look at this, Matt, and I think this could work. First of all, if you're Campbell Soup... This seems a little bit like a no-brainer. You absolutely make this move if you're Campbell's, Campbell's Soup. But if you're Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, I don't know. This could potentially pay off for them. See, here's the difference between between me and – I don't know where David stands on this. I think a, a wearable cell phone watch, good idea. Soup in your coffee maker, not a good idea. I, I didn't see the headline until you emailed me. I thought you were punking me this morning. No. <laughs> this, this seems like this is the strangest idea to me. And, and this is probably because I am a, I'm a coffee lover and not a big fan of – the Keurig makes decent coffee but not a huge fan of the Keurig. I, I do a French press every day. But the idea of taking my coffee maker and putting a soup canister into it and then making coffee again the next morning it appeals to me not at all. Let's be clear. The only way this fails spectacularly is if they haven't figured out how to solve for that problem. You have to assume that at some point someone within the Green Mountain Coffee Roaster brain trust said, look, if we can't make this work so that we're making soup, okay. and then an hour later, we're making coffee, and the soup tastes like soup. The coffee tastes like – that's the only way this works. I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that they are working it out. I'm sure they have not ignored that problem, but it's just the it's, – it's the theoretical idea right. that my coffee is coming from the same place that my chicken noodle soup came from. I don't know. It's just – it doesn't work for me. What do you think, David? Well, at first, I thought it was a really good idea. And Green Mountain stock's been on a great run. The company's really kind of turned around under new CEO Brian Kelly, not the coach of Notre Dame. Different, not, different Brian Kelly. Different Brian Kelly. Different Brian Kelly there. Um, so yeah, at first, I thought it was a pretty good good idea. So it's innovative, but it's really not hard to make soup. I mean, you open the can <laughs> and either put it in the microwave or put it on the stove. Like as a college student, that was like a go to meal. It's not like this is some. Oh, the Keurig now makes great filet mignon or something. Then I'd be like, oh, wow, Green Mountain Coffee Roasters is on it. But but, but soup, it, I mean, maybe. You can make the same argument that it's not that hard to make coffee either. I don't know how to make coffee. Co- coffee coffee can screw up a lot easier than soup. And what I, what I will point out, I think the Wall Street Journal said this, is that there were already a lot of Keurig customers who were using hot water from the machine to make soup. Right. That actually makes sense to me. It's just this idea of the soup. It's the K cup in the yeah the soup in the coffee maker. It just I'm just having trouble wrapping my head around it. So so I'll I'll wear the watch, but I, I'm not eating that soup. Uh, I don't know if this part has been nailed down. I saw one story that said that what I believe Campbell Soup and Green Mountain Coffee Roaster were pushing for in grocery stores, and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Is to have the K cups. Not in the soup aisle. In the coffee. In the coffee yeah. aisle. So that when you are buying your K-cups for your coffee machine, right there you've got the soup as well. I don't know. I, 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 think, I think this has potential. I'm not saying it's $50 billion industry potential <laughs> like the smartwatch. Um, but, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And, frankly, it'll be interesting to see the reviews because you have to figure that within the first week of this being available, 
There are going to be stories. There are going to be people posting reviews online. And that's the only thing that matters. Mm -hmm. Does my coffee still taste just like coffee? Does my chicken noodle (laughs) soup just taste like soup? Salty coffee and and bitter soup. But if if I'm wrong and it works out, I I root for David's idea next. Uh, The filet mignon in the the Craig. All right. David Hansen, Matt Coven, Ever guys, thanks for being here. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Monday.